Welcome to RevOps Corner, where we talk about how B2B SaaS companies scale through revenue operations by interviewing amazing guests and sharing what we see in the trenches every day here at Union Square Consulting. Without further ado, as people are rolling in, I want to welcome everybody to RevOps Live. This is version 10. We're still wow. working on streamlining this and making this more valuable for all of you guys. Uh, every single event we do, we find a couple of things we can improve. Um, but one thing that I'm a big fan of in events like this is just getting right into it. So as people roll in, I just want to welcome everybody. So we're here today with Doug Landis. Doug, thank you so much for joining us as our special guest. Absolutely. I'm here for it. So Doug is a growth partner at uh, early stage venture capital firm, Emergence Capital. Um, it's correct to call you guys an early stage investor, right? A hundred percent. That is our awesome. sweet spot. Series, series A and series B and some kind of seed plus some seeds, but not many. All right. Um, today's topic is go to market and RevOps planning for 2023. And more specifically, how do we plan with a possible recession coming? Um, I'm Eddie Reynolds. I'm the founder and CEO of Union Square Consulting. On my team here, I have Jerry Marletta, who runs our delivery team, our entire consulting practice, as well as Sarah Ra, who is our event producer and does 8,000 other things for us. So thank you guys both for helping out and to produce this event and participate in it. Absolutely. Awesome. We good are good a... Good. Oh, good sorry, to go see ahead, you. Uh, no, I was going to say, good to see you, Jerry. Jerry, were, were you working with Federato, one of our portfolio companies? I am indeed, yeah. I yeah, tell indeed. you, man, they cannot stop talking good, enough good stuff about you. Huge kudos. That's, that's huge awesome. kudos. They're, they're huge fans of yours. Yeah, that's great. I really enjoy working with them as well. Yeah. Thank you again for introducing them uh, to us. And uh, it was funny, Doug, when you're like, hey, like they have such good things to say about you guys. I'm like, what you mean is they have good things to say about Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, that Eddie, that's a testament to you because that's great leadership. I mean, you want your team to be getting all the, all the love and kudos. I'm still trying to figure out great leadership. Step one is hire smarter people than yourself. I think I've achieved that here. Um, I'll figure out step two as I continue to grow in this role. So anyway, we are a revenue operations as a service consulting firm. And that's why we're doing this session today. Um, Doug, as I mentioned, is a growth partner in Emergence Capital. They have invested in companies that you very well likely know, such as Salesforce, Viva, Box, Yammer, Bill.com, Zoom. And I'm missing so many others that you would know well. Doug works with their portfolio companies on their go-to-market strategy, hence why I was so excited to have him here for today's event. I'm going to start off and I'm going to share some brief thoughts of my own on this topic before we dive in, and then I'm going to turn it over to Doug and ask questions. Jerry, as we always do, I encourage you to dive in, ask questions, share your thoughts as well, and then at the end of it, we'll turn this over for audience Q&A. We're still trying to dial this format in, but my thought was, is that since this does go an hour and a half, we're going to spend about an hour recording this and post that to our podcast. And if you want to check that out later, if you have to dive off and you miss anything, Sarah is going to put the information for that in the chat here in Zoom. Um, but we're going to turn the recording off as we go into the audience Q&A in case any of you guys want to ask some questions that maybe you don't want the entire world to hear. We really are here to help you. And if you've got a problem you're trying to figure out, uh, as privately as is possible in a live event, um, we'll turn the recording off and give you the opportunity to ask questions. 
That's awesome. I'm going to make it a point, Eddie, to just interrupt you, just to interrupt you. I appreciate I don't have that. I to contribute, but just to keep you on your toes. I highly <laughs> doubt that. All right. Well, without further ado, I'm going to share some brief thoughts and then we'll dive into the interview. Um, and I didn't want to go in depth here because I'm just really anxious to hear what Doug has to say on this. But I think some of the challenges that I'm seeing, some of the things you guys may have seen in my recent LinkedIn posts is that, you know, we see companies, especially over the last few years, maybe less so recently, that are setting these targets. And the stereotypical problem we see is that, you know, they say, let's triple headcount. We have to triple our number. That's what the VCs are telling us we have to do. So what we're going to do, and sorry, I meant to say triple our revenue. And so what we're going to do is we're going to grow headcount. We're going to increase quotas. And that's magically going to result in us growing revenue. Um, a lot of times we see this top-down approach. And where this really has challenges is that as we go down the planning, we're not only just hiring folks, not factoring in for onboarding. We're not just growing uh, quotas, expecting them to hit a higher quota without thinking about how they actually get there. But then we push sales reps to do more activity as if just making more calls is going to magically result in more pipeline. And the same thing for marketing. We say, well, we need more leads for marketing. So let's increase the MQL target. And that puts immense pressure on marketing to give us leads that are not high quality leads, leads that consume an immense amount of time and resources from our sales team, but don't convert into actual sales. And then we could even go further with net revenue retention with existing customers as we will. And so my viewpoint, and I'm anxious to see if you disagree with me, Doug, and want to correct me here, is that we really <laughs> also need to take a bottoms up approach. And we need to think about step by step how we get to those goals what our total addressable market is like, how many ideal customers we have in the market, the buyer personas that we can target, the territories that we design for these sales reps so that we don't say, oh, we've got four salespeople that are hitting you know, targets. We're gonna hire four more and give them a far inferior territory and expect the same results. Things like that. I think it is so important that we take that bottoms up approach and think step-by-step step how we get to our goals so we can map out plans and set realistic targets for our team, for our company, for finance, and for our wonderful investors that are supporting all of these initiatives. <laughs> I mean, you just said it so well. Why, why am I here? <laughs> Don't worry. As we get into questions, you'll understand the limits you're... of my understanding. <laughs> you're good, man. That was... That was, uh, yeah, you, you kind of nailed it, really. Well, in theory, we do this for a living. So my imposter syndrome is strong, but maybe maybe we've learned a thing or two from some of the customers we've worked with. <laughs> Anywho. I would, I would, I would. <laughs> All right. So Doug, without further ado, let me dive into some questions. Um, Let's do it. One of the things I want to start with before we think about targets is strategic planning framework. So you and I both worked at Salesforce. They are huge advocates of the V2 mom. If anyone's not familiar with it, it's vision, values, metrics, obstacles, and um, methods, if I remember that correctly. Correct. And the idea behind this is that the CEO starts with their vision and their goals, and it rolls down to his direct reports and theirs and theirs and theirs all the way to the front line. So the entire organization has alignment. OKRs is another framework that I'm a huge fan of. It stands for objectives and key results. And if I was going to name it, I'd call it objectives, key results, and initiatives, because that's a critical component. 
And this is the idea that we're going to set goals. We're going to have measurable results associated with those goals. And we're going to have specific initiatives that we're going to execute to try to achieve those goals. And OKRs were made famous by companies like Google starting in the early days and legendary investor John Doerr, Kleiner Perkins, and many others. And we're big advocates of it. Um, the reason that we're big advocates is that sometimes we run into companies, they don't have a planning framework. And I'm curious, Doug, if this is something you advocate for, or if with early stage companies, you feel it's overwhelming and overkill for them. Ooh, okay. That's a, that's a really, really interesting question. Because look, I mean, I think, I, I don't know if I see OKRs as a planning framework, as much as I see maybe a V2 mom as a planning framework. Um, and to be honest, at early stage, OKRs, V2Mom, those are really nice, but most early stage companies are not following a framework of that nature. They basically have, you know, kind of a number and they kind of back into the number based on kind of market segment, based on their own, you know, kind of top-down discussions with their board. Um, they do, most, most of them will do some bottoms up. Uh, math, if they have a strong RevOps person or a, or a finance person or a finance team. Um, but we try and suggest planning strategies for our early companies, but we keep, we try and keep them a little loose. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, when you're an early stage company, there's so much variability in the market and you have to kind of be ready to pivot at any point in time. If you notice that the market is pretty is shifted quite a bit, but whether that's a new competitor that's coming to the market, whether that's just the market dynamics, like you're selling into retail and all of a sudden now we have a ton of headwinds because of the economy. Or if you realize like you start landing some really big customers, you realize, hey, our market segment is really more oriented towards enterprise customers versus these lower SMB commercial type customers that, we're, that we have been landing up until now. So you need to be prepared to pivot. And I feel like a lot of planning frameworks are almost a little bit too rigid um, and for early companies, early stage companies, that's, that's a really, what that's what I've noticed. That's a really interesting perspective. Um, we use OKRs internally as well, and we're not experts on it. We've been trying to learn it over the last year or so. Um, and I recognize that challenge. Um, at the same time, we try to plan them quarterly and you raise a good point that sometimes we're in the middle of the quarter and we're thinking like, we're so small, we're so early, like things are changing. Do we need to drop this entire objective and key result we're pursuing and do something else. Um, but the big challenge I think that I have in managing my company and also working with our clients is just figuring out how do we determine what is top priority when we are just drinking from the fire hose? That's, that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate challenge. And in fact, I talked to a lot of our interesting enough, a lot of our RevOps folks, because I feel like unfortunately, I mean, I'm such a huge fan of, of RevOps. If you all don't know this, Eddie and I have geeked out about this before. Um, I am a believer that even at Series A, right after you raise your Series A funding, one of the very first hires you should make is a RevOps leader. Um, it's part of the reason why we recommend uh, Union Square quite so often. And it's largely because most product or engineering oriented founders don't realize how important RevOps is, especially to the planning process. Because without the insights and the data that RevOps can help to extrapolate, it's really difficult for a founder CEO to identify, well, what, what is our goal for the year? And early stage, unfortunately, it's mostly driven by the number. But the reality is, is I think there's so much more. This, this is, there's other things that are equally as important, like, you know, culture, what is like, what are our values as an organization and how does hitting our number align with our values? Meaning like, you know, 
for during really frothy environments when everyone's just like push, 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 you know, you kind of lose sight of those. And I feel like when when the economy shifts, when things shift, all of a sudden it's like, let's get back to what really matters, what's really important. And what really, what's really important is taking care of our customers and taking care of our people. And so how do we then break that down into some goals that um, align to that? And, and the thing that I love about the V2 mom exercise, which is different than the OKR exercise, is it's so much more driven on like, what is our purpose for the year? What are we really focused on for the year? And, and that's outside of like just hitting a revenue target. It's like, well, who do we want to become or who are we becoming? And that's, and, and then how, do, how does everything else, you know, kind of trickle down to that or ladder up back to kind of the big vision of what we're trying to create as an organization? There, the, and the moving parts in there um, are constantly shifting, which is where you can use OKRs. And, and I like the idea of using them on a quarterly basis to, to readjust. One of the things that I often do with our sales leaders at our early stage is, you know, <laughs> this is super common, but the board's like, I need you to just triple because we've got this, you know, the best companies in the world did triple, triple, double, 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 as we all know. And so the board's like, great, we need you to triple. <laughs> and, then, and then the sales leader and I will sit down and be like, okay, I, I have a feeling that the number is going to be three X. Um, and so let's do some work, hopefully with a RevOps person or a consultant to help us identify, like, is that even feasible? And, and the reality is, is you're never going to know if it's really feasible because it's so early, but you have to start to build in some, you know, what has to be true in order for us to get there. What do you have to believe in order for us to get there? And then what are the risks associated with the plan? And then that, that has to be evaluated every quarter, because if as a sales leader, you're going to sign up for a number that is a triple and that is a big stretch and there's a lot of things that have to happen in order for us to get there, then you need to reassess on a quarterly basis, especially if your comp, all of your comp is predicated on you getting to this number that you signed up for that maybe wasn't the best idea. That's a really so, interesting. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 no. I was like, hey, so, like so, so like I, like going back to your original question, like the planning process is like, I think it's really important for the company to have like, here's our vision, here's what our purpose, here's our, our reason for being because people join companies for purpose. And then like, okay, how are we going to get there? We're going to break that up into smaller objectives that are, that are going to be kind of functionally oriented, but we're going to create a, a process that, that allows us to iterate and, and adjust because of the variability of early stage businesses. It's so interesting. And it's like, we talk internally, we always have this fear when we go to clients that we're going to come in and we're going to say, all right, let's map out your OKRs as an example. And they're going to be super overwhelmed. So what I tell Jerry is, here's why don't we do this? Why don't we map out their OKRs for them without using the terms OKRs? So we're just like, what are your priorities? What are you trying to accomplish? What are we trying to do in order to accomplish that? And then in our mind, we're thinking through that OKR framework, but we're trying to keep it really simple for them to just say, what are we trying to accomplish right now? And what are we doing to accomplish that? Simple. I mean, I, I, one of the things that I've, I've, you know, in the early days, and and even arguably at Salesforce, when they're a massive company, is like simple is really important. Keep things simple, because the more complex and more complicated they become, one, it's hard to evaluate your own performance against whatever you know goals, metrics, whatever your model or framework is. And so, and and when you feel like you're disconnected from that, then it it, it you kind of lose sight of like, well, what what matters. Right. What am I, what should I be focusing on here? What's most important? And, and, you know, at the end of the day, 
you know, especially in early stage, one of the biggest challenges that we all struggle with, and I say early stage, and I'm talking from C to, we'll call it series B, is the prioritization chaos. Priorities are always shifting, yeah. right? You're in a bigger company, there's a little bit more established. It's a little bit more established. You've got like, okay, here's my priority for the year. It's pretty well set, might shift a little bit. In a smaller company, I mean, it's, everything is, is critical. Everything is hair on fire. I got to fix it now, but you can't operate that way. It's not, not sustainable. Just, and it's not just what the priorities are today and how often they're shifting, but whose priorities are they? Mm. And who's impacted? So if one of my priorities shifted, okay, that just might be in my own little tunnel vision, mm -hmm. right? I got I to gotta make an adjustment here. But like now what are the ripple effects of making that adjustment? Often neglected or kind of forgotten about until someone realizes like, hey, by the way, um, my workload's gone up kind of five or six X and I just, I can't, I'm, I'm burning out. <laughs> it's funny. Sarah started with us a month ago and I feel like she's almost at that point. <laughs> um, Sounds like you have to have a conversation with Eddie. <laughs> well, all she does is produce our event, help us with all of our marketing stuff, all of our sales stuff, all of our recruiting stuff. So no big deal, right, Sarah? Yeah. yeah. No biggie. No biggie. Well, I literally just talked to one of uh, our RevOps leaders two days ago. And I was like, do you, as a go-to-market leadership team, have a document, whether it's Notion, Google Docs, I don't really care what the vehicle is, to where, where, where like each function lists their top priorities for that month or quarter. And then on a regular basis, you all discuss them. And what I found, especially for RevOps, it's like, it's so important to sit down and have that conversation. And for her in particular, I was like, just sit down and put down what you think are the priorities, have a conversation with your boss and the rest of the go-to-market leadership team and make sure that you're all one on the same page. Because for, again, for you RevOps leaders, there is, there's always a thousand things to do and you're getting feedback and direction from 10 different people. So, or in some cases, four different people or three different people, but it's more than just your direct boss. And so like the, the priority discussion con needs to be constant and ongoing because otherwise things slip through the cracks. Yeah. And this is why I asked this question first, why we like the OKR framework, why when we're doing a RevOps roadmap or revenue operations roadmap for our customers, what we're trying to do is to say, okay, here are the, the priorities, call them OKRs, call them priorities, whatever for the company and specifically the revenue team. And then here are the initiatives that we're going to do in RevOps for our clients in order to help them achieve that. And what we try to do is literally in that document on one single page, if possible, to align that across, like here are the key results we're trying to produce. Here is how this ties together so that everybody can see that, well, we're trying to build an outbound team. And so, yes, we need to set up Salesforce and uh, sales loft, et cetera, but we also need to do these five things in order to make them successful. And that's why we have to say no to this other request that doesn't fit into that priority. Yeah. Yeah, so true. Otherwise, it's that so outbound true. team is going to be ill-equipped to execute. <laughs> and now we're spending a million dollars on a group of folks and everything to support them and not optimizing that investment. Which leads us really well into our conversation because my <laughs> hypothesis here is that as an investor, you're still expecting high growth from your companies because how else do you make money as a venture capital investor? But I'm curious, is there more of a focus right now in the VC community to say, are we doing things that are slightly more economically sustainable? Are we looking at the costs that are going into these things, knowing that this is still not a cash flow positive business, but we got to be more careful 
with how cash flow negative each of these initiatives are. Yeah, so so it's interesting. I'll start with a very first conversation, and this is probably the number one narrative right now, and likely be the number one narrative for next year and all of next year is, um, don't run out of fucking money. <laughs> rule number like, one. That's, well, yeah. no, like, it, it, it's to be blunt and simple. It's pretty much like just don't run out of money. Um, and and so that's our <laughs> that has now kind of become our top line goal. Right. Arguably continue to build the product and go, you know, get customers and land customers, et cetera. But like it starts here now with don't run out of money. And now what we've been doing with our companies is is kind of unpacking the burn. Let's look at burn. Let's look at where we may be where we may be overinvested, whether that's in technology, whether it's in bodies, whether that's in in markets um, that we thought were potentially fruitful. Um, because you know, when you're in a frothy market and there's a ton of capital, um, you know, you're going to go pressure test and, and A-B test potentially new products, new markets, you know, new new strategies. But right now it's like, no, don't, none of that. Um, uh, you know, whittle down to your core and ensure that number one, we're a must-have. And if we're a must-have for specific markets or specific audiences, well, let's double down there and let's pull back from areas where we feel like we're a, a nice to have. And if we're a nice to have in general, then we need to reevaluate what is it that's missing? How do we get there? And what's it going to cost us and what, how long is it going to take us to actually get there? And, you know, and, and that is a, that's a really difficult discussion. And, and to be totally frank, there's two things that are happening right now. One, going out and raising capital right now is really hard. Everyone's thresholds went up dramatically in terms of what, is, what they need to see and what they need to be comfortable with and what they have to believe about the company and the market. It's gone up exponentially. Um, and we're looking at sales efficiency and the cost of actually landing a customer and your total, you know, your CAC to LTV ratios much more, much more in depth today than we were six months ago. I was just about to ask, since this is RevOps Live, where that bar gets raised that pertains to RevOps. And you just mentioned three things there. Um, anything else that you would add? So if I'm a RevOps leader in an early stage company and I'm hearing what you just said, what do I need to be thinking about to prepare my company to raise the next round? Yeah. So you've got to have a handle on the data. Like you've got to have a real handle on the data. Um, you know, and I'm talking about data in terms of, in fact, we just had this, we just did this exercise yesterday. I want to see if I can find it, um, about, you know, when, if you're going to report to the board or have this conversation with the board about how the business is, is um, performing, then we, we're going to get a little bit more specific and tactical about things like, well, let's look at our, um, you know, our ARR, subscription, subscription revenue uh, monthly versus our plan. Let's look at new customers by month versus the plan. Right. Let's look at churn in dollars, look at churn in numbers of customers versus the plan. Let's look at downgrades. Let's look at average net ASP. Let's look at win rates against competition. Let's look at rep productivity and ramp time, time to first deal, you know, deals close per month, et cetera. Let's look at pipeline. So all of this data, we as investors are, are doubling and tripling down on it because at the end of the day, we need to know, is this repeatable? Is it, is it, so, so the data is going to tell us like, okay, you're onto something and it feels repeatable, but oftentimes so much that is, you know, we'll look into the data and the data is like, eh, it's pretty good. It's not, it's not amazing. It's good. It's good enough for us to like, 
to make some assumptions and to play some bets against. But right now, it's like, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna dig into the data even more specifically, more deeply, to just really know what's really going on in the business. Because because we it's I mean, look, if we were to make a bet on a company right now, we're basically making a bet for three, four, or five years down the road, right? We're not, you know, I mean, this year we know it's like, okay, you'll be flush with cash, but are you gonna spend it appropriately? Well, and even because, more than that, because you don't get your exit unless the next investor sees a path five years down the road from there, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we don't look at exit. We're, we're a little unique in that. I mean, maybe not a little unique, but our, we don't look at exits as like, you know, we, we continue to, the valuations continue to go up and, you know, rat, you know, higher rat, higher rounds are raised and I push the value of the company. I mean, that's all good. Trust me. We want that. We, we don't want down rounds. We want to do everything to avoid a down round. But to us, an exit is going public, which is an eight, 10 year journey. Yep. Right. So if, if the next round that we do in a company is flat or is an extension of the previous round, okay, that's okay. Um, and in fact, maybe we can buy in even more of the business at a lower price point and get more ownership of the company, which is, you know, we're okay with. Um, but, but like just from a, from a funding perspective, we are evaluating the core metrics of the business and especially the health of the customers and the, and the conversion rates into customers really, really um, deeply. And that's why RevOps is so important. I, I appreciate you. I appreciate you plugging RevOps so hard. Obviously I'm a fan of it too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but here's the thing, like a, 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 I'm sorry, if you're head of sales without having a, a RevOps, all the metrics that I just shared with you, it's going to take them a month to pull all that together. If you're a early, super early stage company, if they can. <laughs> and Jerry's over there going, oh. <laughs> right? Well, it, like it's it's hard. It's also just funny to me because like I have a background in finance. I'm a numbers guy. And, you know, in my sales career, I can't tell you how many times I'm like in Salesforce building out reports. And A, I, like when I worked at Salesforce, I worked with these amazing salespeople and they're like, Eddie, how do I build a report in Salesforce? It's like, okay, I'll show you. But it's like, that's not their job. I can't criticize yeah. them for not knowing how to build a dashboard in Salesforce. That's not what they get paid to do. And in no. fact, when I was interviewing at Salesforce, I was trying to tell them how great I was at Salesforce. And my managers were like, that's not going to help you in this job. And I was like, okay, all right, fair point. Um, and so even with that, all the time that I've spent doing that is time I'm not selling or you know, yeah. a manager's not managing or recruiting and enabling their team. So even if you are good at that, man, isn't it valuable to have somebody who doesn't cost as much money and is 10 times better at this than you? Totally. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, shameless plug for us. But anyway, let's get back to the, uh, <laughs> let's get back to the valuable content for others. So here's what I wanted to ask about this. So what I'm hearing from you about this efficiency, it, it, it's exactly what I believe and what I was hoping to hear. And the counter to this is, is that in good times when there's so much money, it's easy to say, all right, let's try all these different things. We want to generate a bunch of marketing leads. So let's just throw money and people at whatever. Let's develop these channels. Let's do this. Let's throw marketing dollars at this. Salespeople, let's just hire a bunch of people, give them a phone, give them a computer. Let's just hit, you know, hit the ground. The problem though, is that companies then do the opposite pivot when cash gets tight and they make equally ill-informed cuts. We just got to cut headcount. We got to cut marketing budget. It's like, wait, hold on a second. Some of the stuff might actually be working for you. 
what I'm yeah. hearing from you is that we need to leverage the data to figure that out, to figure out exactly where we need to place our bets. And I would argue from a RevOps perspective, not just where we need to place our bets, but how we need to place our bets, what the, that step-by-step -step process is to make those fewer investments more successful. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think the, the, the challenge that, that many revenue leaders and even CEOs are, have been facing over the last six months and will continue to face next year is who do I let go? Yeah. But if I have to, if if I have to make cuts, who do I cut? And I will tell you, there's no easy answer to that. I'm not gonna lie, there's not an easy answer to that. Um, unfortunately, the default becomes the people who are the lowest performers, right? Which, look, I mean that makes that makes sense. Um, but I'll tell you what, if um, you can't take that just on uh, on its own merits, the fact that like maybe I haven't closed a deal. I can tell you a company, we, one of our portfolio companies, we're just going over the numbers because they're out fundraising right now, which sucks. Um, it's likely just going to be an extension to the last round. And he's going through all of the reps. And the number one rep that we all know, she, without question, she's the best rep in the whole company. She's at like 27%. And I looked at him because he's preparing for a board meeting and, and a pitch actually with, yeah, BC, in fact, it's today. And I said, what are you going to say about that? Because if I'm if I'm an investor and I'm looking at these numbers, I'm like anybody that's below fifty percent that's been here for at least a year. Why are you keeping them? Yeah. Right. And so, but meanwhile, we know that she's without question the best performing rep, and as like just the just the best process that most professional gets the most meetings converted. So so he's like, that's a really interesting question, and I'm, and it's he can't just say it's because he's known her for ten years. So he's got to look at her date. He's got to look at the activity data. He's got to show like how she manages deals and opportunities. He's got to be able to talk to the fact that like she's, you know, some of her deals pushed, you know, as a result of some of the market conditions. Like he's got to have a story there. But so you can't just cut the bottom, you know, the bottom performers because you may end up being forced to let go people who are actually the right cultural fit. And maybe in some cases you choose somebody, keep somebody because they're a great culture fit but we just didn't ramp them properly. They got no yeah. support, right? Um, they didn't even have access to Salesforce for the first like six weeks, <laughs> right? <laughs> for whatever reason. I mean, there's a number of things that, that there are a number of reasons why people don't necessarily are, they're not necessarily the top performers. Yeah, not all territories are equal. Not all reps get the same amount of inbound leads from marketing. Yep. Um, there are so many factors at play here. And if you don't have the right data, first of all, like forget like letting go of people. I understand that that's something that has to be done. But before that, are we coaching on those particular issues? I mean, why is that rep not hitting quota? Is it because they're not making enough calls? Is it because the calls aren't good? Is it because they're getting meetings, but not converting them into pipeline? Is it because totally. they have a territory that isn't assigned right? And if we're not looking at that, we have gross inefficiencies in the business that we should solve before we start thinking about headcount in my mind, though I do appreciate that like cash is king. And if you don't have the cash to pay people, you got to make cuts, but I'd like to get ahead of that. Well, yeah. not just, not just digging into why now are we seeing such a miss, but seeing it ahead of time, seeing it as it's happening and digging into why and catching it before it gets that bad and figuring out, is it just a human performance issue or are there other factors that are affecting it? Shouldn't be a year end, you know, or quarter end review where you go, oh yeah, they're way behind. 
Okay. Yeah, that's 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 very true. That's why it's a constant evaluation. But unfortunately, we also find ourselves in situations where the VP of Sales doesn't have capacity to sit down and listen to all their calls. They because maybe they don't really have RevOps support. Maybe they do. Maybe the RevOps person is just basically a, a glorified Salesforce admin. And there's 18 other things that they need to do. Like right now, it's the end of the year. What are so many RevOps people getting stuck doing? Deal desk. Mm -hmm. Right? How much time is RevOps spending doing deal desk stuff right now? And meanwhile, there's stuff around capacity planning for next year. Do we have you know quota planning for next year? You're thinking about onboarding and ramping for next year. What if we don't have sales enablement? How do we partner with marketing? Um, yeah, let's pull all the right reports for the, you know, the, the upcoming board. I mean, it's bananas how much work that a RevOps leader right now has to do. And, oh, by the way, we're trying to get deals closed. So what's most important? Yeah. And so many of those individuals on top of all of that are also managing all the systems and answering all the questions, oh, which yeah. is just like, you know, so I want to cool. say, I don't know how you do it, but we've had enough conversations with folks in the market that we know exactly how they do it. They drown. They absolutely it's, drown. It's, it's so true. It's so interesting because I mean, in fact, to that point, it's so there's, there's two things happening. Number one, I'm expanding my team to actually bring on a rev ops, rev ops support. So when we don't, you know, if they're, if they're not going to outsource to union square, big plug for you all. Um, one of the, one of the things that we're actually doing internally and more and more venture firms are, are, are doing this, but I'm bringing on functional experts to my team on like a retainer basis. And we're going to offer very specific packaged, um, engagements, if you will. So sorry, it's a little competitive to you all, but it's, it's like, we're going to, they're going to come in and let's just build your state of the union dashboard to take four hours. Because guess what? By the time they engage with you all and they figure out all of the stuff that they need to fix and do in Salesforce, they still don't even have this simple dashboard that the CEO and the head of sales need that they can share with the board of like, hey, here's how we're performing. It's these little things. And to be honest, if, if I had time and capacity, I would just do it. I'd be like, here, give me access to your Salesforce. Here you go. Crank this out for you. So um, we're bringing other people in to help in these little areas. Like, for example, um, at Series B, uh, how many people actually have a um, an early warning system in place for their existing customers? Because what happens is in Series A, you start to get some customers and all. The, Let's you know, clarify what that is. Sorry to interrupt. I don't know if everybody knows what an early warning yeah, system is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll exp I'll explain. So an early warning system basically it, it gives. It gives everybody inside the business insight as to what customers might be at risk for potentially churning um, based on usage of the product, right, of, of your product um, or engagement, right? So they may be using the product, but they've skipped every single one of your QBRs and they're not engaging. And now all of a sudden you're like, and, and what happens is all of a sudden the customer churns out of left field and no one expected it. And so what you really want is you want insight and details as to like what's happening with, their, with the health of your customers. But what typically happens is Series A, you're just starting to get renewals. And then right as you're about to go hit your Series B or maybe early Series B, all of a sudden you start losing some customers. You're like, where did that come from? How do we not know about it? And you panic, right? Yeah. And then it's like, okay, what do we? where's our health scorecard and all this other? And I'm like, well, what if at Series A, we brought somebody in, they spent eight hours, 10 hours, built an early warning system in Salesforce for you. So that now you know for all of your early customers. And so now you also don't have to go out and maybe necessarily buy 
um, whether it's it's churn zero or client success or or you know another a big heavy duty application that you probably don't even have time to implement or capacity to implement, right? And so like RevOps is becoming so important to an early stage company. Um, and I think, I think, I feel like VCs are ju just now starting to realize that. And they're just now starting to give it more credence, especially when it comes to like key hires to make. I'm such a big believer in this. And before joining Salesforce and then subsequently starting this firm, I worked in uh, fundraising for private equity and venture capital firms. And I spent all day, every day calling P and VC firms, more PE than VC, and yeah. asking them if they wanted to hire my company to help them raise capital from institutional investors. Yeah, and yeah, I really enjoyed that job. Uh, actually, that's not true. I didn't like that job. I loved the idea of that job. And uh, <laughs> what I- Don't Good story there, but we'll, we'll save that for another day. <laughs> but what I found fascinating is, and this is more because I was more focused on later stage private equity, were the were the the firms that had real true operating partners that would bring in folks to help the company, not just financial engineers. So often happens in private equity, but oh my God, we're going to bring true. in seasoned executives to come and improve the operations over the five or seven years that we own this business. Yep. And I know VCs have always been more hands on than PE in that way, but it just in general, I think there's so much value in investors bringing in operating partners or creating operating divisions to help with this stuff. It's true. No question. It is, it is so important um, because here's the thing, all the questions that we all want as investors that we want to answer, if you don't have a finance team or if you don't have RevOps, CEO and head of sales aren't going to be able to answer all those questions. I'm just, I just, I promise you that. And those guys are last minute to put it together. We, we've oh. Had those situations where we go from crickets with, with any help to a weekend, you know, 40 hours being burned over the weekend, putting together reports and trying to massage the figures to, to be what they want them to be. Dude, it's so true. It's so true. Good news is I feel like they're starting to get it now. Well, let, let me take this conversation back to get into that. So I'm wondering where we should start. I'm thinking about, we dive a little bit deeper into like setting targets, unless you have another idea. But basically Oof. the big question I want to spend the next 20 minutes on is how do we actually do this planning for 2023? Should we start with targets? How about this? <laughs> I mean, I All right. I will take us <laughs> yeah. off track for one moment because I posted something the other day that was pretty controversial. I don't know if you saw it. Um, I didn't want to tag you with it just in case you're like, I don't want to be associated with this, but it had to do with this topic. It's unfortunate because it got 90,000 views. And as a side note, I tried to write the same thing yesterday and toned it down because I was like, oh my God, maybe if I tag Doug in this, he's going to be super upset with me. And then we got like 2000 views Amazing. on the one that I toned down. So anyway, one of the comments from a very well-known CEO of a very large startup that we all know, and I don't want to throw this guy under the bus, was, hey, we did all this planning based on what a consensus of analysts had told us about the economy. And I tried not to have a snarky response, but I was just like, well, like if these analysts knew what the heck they were talking about, they wouldn't be sharing their secrets with you and me. They would be running a hedge fund. Nobody yeah, knows totally. where the economy is going to go, right? Like, It's all guess. It's all guesswork. It's um, yeah, that's bananas. All right, continue. Sorry, I'm just anyway. I'm, just, I'm taking I'm taking us off track. Let's get back into it. So, all right, Doug, how do I plan for 2023? Where do you want to start with this? Should we talk about targets or should we talk about something else? Um, I mean, let's let's 
it's, it's, it's I, walking into this conversation. I knew there was going to be risk that I, there's risk that I'm going to offend some people, um, and I want to be really I want to be really mindful <laughs> that I'm not offending my own my own teammates, my own company, uh, my own yeah, firm. Because interestingly enough, we're going through a somewhat of a similar exercise internally, where um, I'm trying to better understand how each GP partners with their portfolio companies to come up with a plan for the year, mm -hmm. because it's not consistent. And the reason why I say that is it's important yeah. because they're, you know, you, if you're funded by Sequoia, Benchmark, Battery, it doesn't matter. It's all about the partner that you're working with. And oh, by the way, the other people that are on the board and what they think and how they work together. Um, so it's not simple. It's not black and white. There's not a, the only formula that I think it's most consistent we're all familiar with in terms of target setting is like, let's go three, three, two, 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 right? Um, and oftentimes it's like finger in the air. I think we can get there. Like we've got all these, all we've got all this interest. We just generated all this pipeline. It feels like we can, it feels like we can get there. We've generated 15 million in pipeline this last year. That's amazing. We should be able to hit, you know, 12 million in ARR from four. <laughs> are you sure about that um i can give you a real life story i'm not going to mention any names but there was a, one of our companies and i even wrote about this as well but one of our companies is at about four million in arr and you know the board decided your target needs to be 12. i was like cool how did we come up with that number it's like well just that's what we should be doing that's what we should be targeting we need to get there okay all right so let's do this. So let me sit down with the go-to-market leadership team, whiteboard, and let's talk about how we're going to get there. And we whiteboarded. We've just built a bottoms-up plan and a model with all the risks associated. And I looked at the sales. I'm like, I wouldn't sign up for that number. There's no way. Here's a perfect perfect scenario. And and I threw that one of the co-founders of the firm was on the was in the meeting with us. And so I, I looked at him. I'm like, so we've done one six-figure deal. In order, your assumption is in order for us to get to 12, we're going to do 16. <laughs> Just think about that for a second. Okay, you did that one, was, and now you're going to do 16. That was going to be my question. What were the specific reasons why you're saying I wouldn't sign up for that number? And you just gave so, a great example. This, oh, well, this is one of them. Um, but here's, so here's, so then I was like, and I was like, okay, cool. Maybe we can do 16. Maybe it's frothy environments. We got some momentum. We just raised a bunch of cash. Maybe we can do 16. How many companies do we need to have engaged by when in order for us to get how many opportunities in pipe, in motion, in order to get to 16 closed deals by the end of the year? And the room was like, uh, I don't know. And I was like, fucking kidding me right now. That's like math. Okay. What is our win rate for a six-figure deal? Oh, we only have one. Oh, so all right. What's our blended win rate then for the organization? Because we don't really have the data for that. So let's just say 20%. Okay, so then how many how many opportunities do we need to have in play this year in order to get to 16 closed deals? Like, oh, they're all busting out the calculators. I'm like, okay, cool. Now, that's the easy part. Opportunity, close rate, that's easy. How many companies do you need to engage with in order to create those well, what's how many opportunities? How many opportunities is it? Like, just gotta just quick math. I was like, what, 80, 80 opportunities? So, how many companies do you need to engage with in order to get to eighty opportunities? Let's just figure it out. Maybe. Think about that. 
there's not, you're just not, you're just, not, you're just going to target 80 companies and you're going to generate 16 opportunities from that. It's not going to happen because you got to target way more than that. In fact, let's, let's think about targeting 800 and that's a 10% conversion rate, which is really high. So let's talk about 1600. And then, and then, and then, and then I'm like, I'm just throwing out numbers. Do you know 1600 companies that could afford to pay six figures for our solution in the next 12 months? And it was just crickets. It's like, okay, so that's a problem. That's a risk. Let's talk about another risk. Let's talk about just pipeline in general, right? So that's pipeline for our big deals. Let's talk about the long tail, the smaller deals. You know, so ACV was around 12,000. So if our ACV stays the same, looking at the number of deals that we did sub six figure, over the course of the year, how many net new deals do we need to do? And I think it was something north of, I don't know, something like we had to do 1,200 deals or something silly like that. I was like, okay. Um, how, how are we going to, so if it's 1,200 deals we actually have to do, that means we now need like 12,000 companies that can potentially spend 12K with us. Like, how are we going to find them? <laughs> I mean, the pipeline question is, it's why I wrote that article on like about pipeline for founders, because it's like, that's the single biggest challenge. Like you could come up with whatever number you want to come up with, but if you can't generate a pipeline, you're never going to get there. Never going to get there. By the way, that's just, a, that's just talking pipeline. That doesn't include execution. That doesn't include competition. You know, that doesn't include, you know, just, just brand awareness and marketing. That doesn't include pricing and packaging. Like we have to evaluate, I mean, is there ways in which we can potentially increase our price and all of a sudden cut that gap down so we don't need 1200, we could get away with 600. Um, let's talk about, oh, then the, another big risk factor was like, talk about existing customers. So our net dollar retention for the previous year was like 176%, right? It's crazy off the charts. Like okay, what do you think? What do you think the what do you think the likelihood of us maintaining that is? That's not great. It's, it's just it's pretty unlikely. I mean, we had the problem is is so when we looked at that number, we had one big customer that grew like crazy, right? And so that threw all the numbers off. So it looked like our net dollar retention was crazy, but we just had one customer that grew like you know a thousand percent, and it was like okay, well, how did that happen? Well, the company grew. Oh, interesting. So what if the companies don't grow at the same clip as that one? So how do you anticipate what growth, organic growth you're going to get? I mean, organic growth for a series A stage company, you can't. I mean, that is like, that's guessing. If you're as good as guessing, you might as well go play the lottery or go to Vegas. <laughs> it's just your, your odds are not in your favor. And so then the question is, is what are things that we can do to actually, instead of relying on organic growth, what are things that we can do to actually drive that growth? What are the signals that we can look for in the companies that have grown that we can actually help to control a bit more of? Because that's something that we could potentially control. My whole thing was like, what are the things that we can, can we control and what can't we control in the process? Yeah, there's Which so much funny. in there. I mean, Go ahead, Jerry. <laughs> it's funny because that's, that's how, I mean, that's one of the tenets sort of of the, the OKR model that we've been using is the, you know, leading and lagging and, and things like that, so. Yeah, that's good hear somebody else know that it's important to focus on the things that we can control and not focus on the things we can't 
Well, you know, it's interesting because when we're when we're looking at a company to fund, we have a whole you know model that is that includes all these what you have to believe, right? So um, the reality is, is like when it comes to planning, I feel like what happens when it comes to planning, operational planning inside an organization, we forget that piece. When you we say what you have like, to believe, it's like things you have to believe in order for the investment to work out. Yeah, for sure. Like we don't know when we're investing in a seed stage or series A company, you have to believe that the market is going to continue to grow, right? You have to believe that we can continue to land big six, seven figure customers. You have to believe that the competition, you know, that, 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 that we're going to continue to different, maintain our differentiation and keep the gap that we have between any competitor in the market. These are things that you have to believe because we can't validate or prove them at series A. It's way too early, right? This is... This is a huge challenge, something Jerry and I were talking about before this meeting. And so with what you were just saying about thinking about, we're going to hit our target of X, we're going to do that by going from one large customer to 16 large customers that we're going to land next year. How are we going to do that? How many people, how many opportunities do we need to create? How many um, you know, calls do we need to make? Sorry, we didn't get into that. That's where I wanted to go. And so <laughs> when I think about generating pipeline, you think about outbound versus inbound and it's like, okay, so we, we generated X amount of opportunities last year, or last quarter. Well, how many of those came from marketing and how many of those came from outbound? Because if we're going to hire more salespeople, they're not going to create more marketing generated leads. So then we have to think about like, well, how many calls do they actually need to make? So we're going to generate a hundred opportunities. How many calls do they need to make? How many companies are there? How many times can you call one company? And you start to do that math. And I've done this every time I've ever looked at this problem since I've been in sales for like, I don't know, at least in SaaS sales for like 12 years. And it's like, all right, well, I'm going to call each of these customers or prospects six times, 10 times. Yeah. All right. Well, it takes a lot of effort to make 10 calls. So multiply that by a thousand companies, that's 10,000 phone calls. How long does it take to make 10,000 phone calls? It takes a while, right? Then you have to factor in, okay, we're going to tell, we're going to hire this new account executive or SDR and ask them to make 10,000 phone calls. They're not going to just start crushing it on day one. There is a ramp time. So we have to figure out all of these things. And then we go back to marketing as well. And we say, okay, marketing, we need double the amount of pipeline from you guys. The same concept applies. Which channels are these coming from? How are we going to get twice as many sales qualified opportunities, not just marketing leads, but sales qualified opportunities from our email marketing program? Are we going to have double the number of people on our list? We're just going to buy a list from Zoom Info and expect the same results from this list we built up over 10 years? It doesn't work that way, right? (laughs) Oh, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. It's so good. I mean, you're taking it, when you start taking it all the way down to the activities and calls, that's when like, that's when people tend to freak out. Yeah. That's when people tend to freak out because they're like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, can't we, can't we do that? It's similar, by the way, I'll draw a parallel. It's similar to when we hear early stage companies come to us and like, oh my gosh, I'm just flush with all this inbound. This was, you know, nine, 12 months ago, not necessarily now, (laughs) but like they'd come to us and be like, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta hire a a head of sales right away. Like there's seed early series A. And I'm like, um, no, you don't. You need to go out and hire some SDRs because you give me a month and I can plow through all that inbound in no time. 
so many people think that all this inbound interest, I'm getting all these hits on my website. I got all these people that want, you know, demos. It's like, you know, just throw a couple of SDRs at that and you'll filter out 90% of that is, is total hogwash. I mean, the amount of people that prospect to me based on the fact that I went to like your website at Union Square Consulting and I downloaded a, a, a playbook or a white paper. I read this article and next thing you know, you're, you're reaching out to me. I'm like, do you not know that I'm not your target customer? I mean, for you guys, maybe I am, but. No, we don't call those people like just flat <laughs> out. Like we have a list of people that have registered. We have a, we did gate a white paper for a while. And like at no point in time was I ever thinking like, let's go and hammer these people with 10 phone calls each. Like, I'm sorry, A, I don't have the time. And B, yeah. I just don't believe that if I hire somebody to do that, I'm going to get an ROI. And also all these wonderful folks that have joined us today, I think you guys don't want me to hire an SDR to hammer you with 15 phone calls. I don't know, oh maybe gosh. I'm wrong. I think they, I think you're right. Um, so with that said, this raises a question because you keep mentioning the challenge of this in early stage. And this is what Jerry and I were talking about before this call. I'm talking about, you know, we need this many activities to generate this much pipeline and this many emails go out from our marketing to generate this many like inbound leads. And it's like all fine and dandy when you actually have that data. But when you're yeah. so early that it's like, you know, you're moving from founder led sales into building a sales and marketing team. And the founder, as is so often the case, is selling to their personal network of people they've known for 20 years. They are talking about the thing that is their baby, the pain oftentimes that they felt personally for a decade or more and figured out how to solve it. And then you're going to hire a new salesperson and, you know, okay, go hit the phones. Um, and I don't have a great answer to this. Like, how do you approach that problem? And I think that you, someone answered this earlier in the, in the meeting to say, well, we need to believe some things. We need to set some targets, but we need to constantly be looking at that data and revising those targets and asking like, is this working? Yeah, totally. But, but how do you approach that problem? That's my question. Like, is that it or am I missing something? Um, I mean, I think <laughs> you're not really missing anything because you, you, you nailed it. At the end of the day, we're constantly, I think it's really up to the founders and this is where this is where alignment between the board partner and the founders founders I say because usually there's multiple founders and the go to market leadership and hopefully your investors have some sort of operating partner or growth partner like myself and that's where the alignment really comes in because like our founders they look Many of them have been, you know, not founders, but like our GPs, many of them haven't been operators. They know how to build companies in their sleep, no question. But when you get down to the minutia of like the activities and to when do we hire and how do we hire and how do we ramp it on board and how do we think about quotas that's appropriate for them, uh, that's that's the tactical stuff that they tend to not get involved in. And, and so they need help. All of these companies need help to help to, to, to ensure that they're 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 thinking about this the right way in a healthy way because yeah. I hate it I hate it I mean again I, that's why I think that what you have to believe and what needs to be true exercise is really important because it, it allows at a minimum that like we can call out the things maybe assumptions that we're making right that we have to pressure test and validate there's so yeah. much to unpack there Doug and I love that answer what I would say is that it's fascinating to me that when I worked at Salesforce, our top rep on our team, the guy that was at like 200%, was at like president's club six months into the year. 
the thing that I noticed from him was that he would go after the most junior person in the company and make that person love him. And then he would walk into the office and they would roll out the red carpet and he would mm -hmm. get a meeting with every single person he wanted to meet with because that person, A, opened doors for him and B, you get so much intel from those folks. Oh, what, bananas. What, they know the, what the problems are in the business. And then you go to the yeah. CEO and the CEO is like, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't have time for that. And you're like, here's why you're not making more money. Mr. And Ms. CEO. I talked to three people on your team and this is the problem they shared with me. I have yet to have a conversation with an executive where they don't at least respond to that. They might say, look, that's not my priority right now, but they're usually pretty receptive to those kind of conversations. Yep. Yep. I'm just a big believer in going into every conversation and one realize believing that you can actually get some valuable information, but you can also be really, really helpful, but you can only do that if you're going in with some, with a prepared mind and a, and a hunch or a hypothesis about what you think might be happening. And the important word there is might, you don't know, we never know. Right. Yeah. But, but the reality is, is, you know, if, if I'm a VC and I'm on your website, Eddie, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just trying to get some information to help my portfolio companies. Right. It's a, it's a fair hunch. I'm not saying it's an assumption. It's just a hunch. Um, you know, the amount of people that I, I, I'll go, I'll download a white paper and whatever, and they prospect to me as if I am the sweet spot. I am the ideal customer profile and I'm the buyer persona they, I, they should be talking to. I'm like, are you, are you dumb? I don't mean to be an asshole, but like, you serious right now? No, they're not dumb. They have extremely high activity quotas. They don't have time to <laughs> okay. do their research. That's, That's totally fair. I mean, That's I totally had this fair. call, I had this SDR call me from, I can't remember <laughs> yeah, what company a, it was. I just, I just get to the point, I'm just like, you gotta be dumb. I just get rid of it. So I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, look, like, I think there is like a lack of training. Like I started off my career in banking. And so like you call a customer mm -hmm. and you don't know like who they are or what you're talking about. Like they're just like, it's so embarrassing. It's just so unacceptable in that industry. So totally. when I entered SaaS and I saw people just running hundred miles an hour, like I struggled to like, cause I came into Salesforce selling into, you know, small growth businesses. And I saw my mm -hmm. colleagues just running hundred miles an hour. And I was like, I can't run that fast. Like mm -hmm. I have to research this account. I have to know everything that's happening. And I had to coach myself on how to move faster, but I had an SDR call me from, I can't remember what company it was, but like a really big well-known company like Zoom or Clary or one of these companies. And we had this conversation, she called me and I was asking her about her day-to-day -day and she's like, yeah, I have to do like 600 activities a day. Now, a lot of those were automated, but I was like, what? 600 a day? 600 a day? I'm like, of course you're not researching the account. Nope. Now, there, these oh were not God. all phone calls. A lot of these were, you know, send all automated messages through outreach or sales loft, but 600 a day. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> anyway. All right. So let's turn this over to audience Q&A. Um, for the purpose of the podcast, I'm going to stop recording here in a moment. And I just want to thank you, Doug, for joining us and sharing all of this. Absolutely. And Jerry, Sarah, thank you for helping to produce this. Uh, we can turn off the recording now. Everybody can access it on Apple, Spotify, our website, and then we'll dive into audience Q&A. Awesome.